Do you like exclusive stuff? Yes, yes sir. sir. Do you like having access to your favourite podcast hosts in a way like never before? Yeah, absolutely. Do you wish you had access to our old Survivor Oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online? Oh, yeah. If you answered yes to one, two or all of those questions, then get excited because the Oz Network is now on Patreon. <laughs> That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made. You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome to the Oz Network for what's going to be an abbreviated version of what we've done every past year, where we will do every Best Picture nominated movie leading up to the Oscars. And in past years, we've always done one movie a day, all the way up until the day before the Oscars. This year, a little bit different, because let's be honest, 2020 was a little bit of a different year. Not just a different year as far as the world goes, but a different year as far as movies go. There just wasn't enough time to do 30-minute episodes on eight separate movies this year. So what we're going to do, what I'm going to do, along with a few other people here, uh, is we're going to bring you all eight Best Picture nominated movies in one single episode, kind of micro-reviews. So let's get into it. My name is Colin, and where is The Five Bloods? That's something that I will mention a few times here. Where is The Five Bloods? Maybe my favorite movie from last year. A movie that got no attention as far as the Oscar voters go, and really should have, especially for Delroy Linda. Where is The Five Bloods? I would rather be doing two hours on The Five Bloods right now than any of the other movies here, maybe with the exception of one or two. But this is not going to be a 100% solo review. Uh, I kind of decided I would do this very last minute, maybe within the last week. We pretty much written off there's no way we're going to be able to cover all the Oscar movies this year. In every year past that we've done the Oz Network, we have done a series on them, and even years prior to that, I'll always go out of my way to watch all the Best Picture nominated movies. So I kind of felt like there's no way I'm not going to watch these movies. There's no reason that I shouldn't put something out there. Uh, And it is fun to be able to kind of go through these movies, figure out which ones should have been nominated, which ones shouldn't. Uh, So I'm going to be doing this along with a little bit of help. You're going to hear from uh, both Jamie and Noah at some point in this episode who do join me for one or two of the movies that they did see, uh, and the rest will be all me. 2020, very different year for movies, obviously because of the pandemic, uh, obviously for other reasons, a lot of things got delayed. Uh, so maybe there were some higher profile potential Oscar worthy movies that because of financial reasons, you know, they couldn't just go with less release at streaming. Let's do it on demand. This is the year where it's the pandemic year. We're not going to have the best of the best, but there are a few movies here. You're going to hear me talk about that. I feel like really do deserve. And if they, these are the ones that go on to win, this will be remembered as this is a best picture winner. I don't think that this is ultimately going to go down as this was the best picture winner of a pandemic year, so it doesn't count. Uh, there's good stuff here. There's bad stuff. I can't wait to get into it. And then uh, stay tuned all the way to the end. I'll kind of rank all these movies as well as do a little bit of a talk about some of the other nominations. But we're going to go through this one movie at a time here. So let's kick it off. <laughs> first movie I'm going to talk about here was actually the first one that I saw of all the Best Picture nominated movies, uh, and probably the first one that most people saw, because it did come out a couple months ago. I'm talking about The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, now, this is a movie that 
dates back pretty much 15 years in development. I remember hearing about this 15 years ago when it was originally supposed to be Steven Spielberg directing, and I think Aaron Sorkin had still written the screenplay at that point. Uh, but Spielberg was attached to this movie for, we got to say, close to a decade. And I sort of knew about the story vaguely. There's been lots of d- documentaries that have been out over the years. Uh, obviously, I was not even close to being alive when this happened. Uh, but my mom, who grew up uh, in the 60s, uh, even though she was very young in the 60s, she, she was very into the, the, the culture, the, the hippie culture and all that. So some of these stories I'd sort of heard variations of over the years. So I was somewhat familiar with this, but not so familiar with it that I went into this movie knowing this is exactly how it was going to take place. This is exactly how it was going to end. Uh, And I think it's appropriate this was the first movie that most people probably saw and that I saw because it might be the only one of these eight Best Picture nominated movies that feels like your typical Hollywood Best Picture contender. Uh, It is big. It's not like a $100 million movie, but it does feel like one of the bigger ones that's been nominated this year. Uh, It's got a huge cast. It's this big historical event, and it's very flashy in ways. It's very high energy. I mean, obviously, Aaron Sorkin went on to both write and direct this, and it has that Aaron Sorkin feel to it. It's very fast-paced dialogue and all that. As far as the direction of this movie goes... I don't know if this would have been better as a Spielberg movie, because to be honest, I feel like a lot of Spielberg's movies over the last 10, 15 years have been complete garbage. Uh, Take a movie like Lincoln, which got a ton of praise for Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, uh, and even got a Best Picture nomination, but the movie itself, I feel like, was very underwhelming. War Horse, I would say, even more so underwhelming. But in the end, this ends up being Aaron Sorkin's movie, and only the second movie he's ever directed. And I think that's interesting because it was uh, three years ago, I I did a review of Molly's Game, which was the first movie he directed. And I was a little bit more on the fence about that movie. There were things that I loved about it. The screenplay was great. Jessica Chastain was great. Uh, But I didn't feel like he completely hit the ball out of the park. To me, this feels like this is what you would get if you really imagine what is an Aaron Sorkin directed and written movie going to feel like. It is very fast-paced. There is a lot going on. There's a lot of humor to it. And I think that's what works because this is kind of a heavy subject matter. I mean, it's essentially about a riot that developed during what was originally peaceful protests at the Democratic National Convention in 1968. And the higher-profile people who were involved in that kind of being on trial. I think one of the things that really works about this story, I'm not going to say movie because this was a real story, one of the things that's intriguing about this story is the fact that some of these people aren't necessarily the ones who should have been to blame, but they were high profile, and the government said, let's go after these people, this is going to get attention, we need to make a point with this. The movie's full of great performances, obviously Sasha Baron Cohen got a nomination for this, and I'm not going to talk down his performance, I mean, I would much prefer him getting a nomination for this over Borat 2, which I thought was a very underwhelming movie, and a kind of a disappointing sequel. Uh, but when I was watching this movie the first time around, I, I just found myself every single time an actor sort of had their first big introductory scene thinking, yeah, if there's going to be an Oscar nomination, it might be Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne might be the guy because at the point I saw this, nominations were still months away. And I was thinking maybe Eddie Redmayne gets a nomination for this. And I'm not even the biggest Eddie Redmayne fan. I feel like he's been nominated far too many times for complete garbage performances. Uh, And I'm going to include the one he won for in there, The Theory of Everything, which I thought was a terrible movie. And uh, kind of just an impression that, that if people hadn't known uh, who the real person was, they wouldn't have necessarily given the same praise. Eddie Redmayne was great in this movie. Sasha Baron Cohen, when he comes on screen, I'm like, wow, I could actually see Sasha Baron Cohen getting an Oscar nomination for this movie. Uh, but then the other ones that I feel like in the long run, I definitely connect with more. 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's playing one of the prosecutors here, and a prosecutor you actually sympathize with, even though the government position and the position this movie takes is that they're definitely not in the right for pursuing this trial. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as usual, just has a way of, without being the biggest guy in the movie, without being uh, the most flamboyant character, being more subdued, more subtle, kind of steals the movie. And that's the way I felt about him in The Dark Knight Rises and Inception. But the main one, Mark Rylance, who... If you've never seen Mark Rylance at anything, like go out of your way to watch even just selected scenes of him. He got nominated for Bridge of Spies years ago. He was in Dunkirk. And again, he has this way of, he has such an unusual acting style. He, he's very quirky and he never feels the same. And to me, I feel like I'm more bothered that Sasha Baron Cohen got nominated, not because it wasn't a great performance, but because I feel like Mark Rylance stole this movie. So I would have rather substitute Mark Rylance in there, although it was nice to see Sasha Baron Cohen get nominated if it was uh, a good performance. It probably also helped that Sasha Baron Cohen was playing of the real people in this movie, the most well-known one. He's playing character Abby Hoffman, who audiences would probably already be familiar with. I mean, if you've ever watched any documentaries of the time period, I'm sure he's been profiled uh, in similar subject matter like this. But even in Forrest Gump, Abby Hoffman is a fictional character in Forrest Gump. Uh, a f- fictionalized version of himself. The scene where Forrest is at the the big protest, and there's the the screaming guy there. The mic's cutting out when Forrest is trying to say what Vietnam was like. I mean, that was Abby Hoffman. So maybe because he was a more well known figure, he gets the nomination here. The one thing I'm going to say is this movie is not boring in any way. It might be the most all around entertaining movie out of all these eight, but I'm not going to say it's the best because it does feel a little bit more Hollywood. It feels like this is what you expect from this movie. You don't really get more than what you would expect. Uh, it's it's a little bit typical of courtroom procedural film, historical film. Uh, I don't feel like it ever lifts itself above the genre, uh, although there is a lot of energy to this movie, and I don't think anybody could have done it better than Aaron Sorkin. It is just sort of your typical movie. Definitely more enjoyable than some of the other movies. Uh, on just a single viewing, what do you want to go out of your way to watch? You're going to be entertained. You're not going to want to turn it off. Trial of Chicago 7 is probably the one. But in the end, I don't think this is going to be the highest one on my list. Just because I do feel like we've sort of been there, done that with this before. Still though, if I'm going to go out of my way to rank it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to rent this movie. Just because... As much as I was blown away while I was watching this and I was entertained, at the time I wasn't really thinking, oh, is this going to be a best picture? Now when I've sort of watched a lot of the other movies, I feel like this is, it's it's middle of the road. And in the what, five, six months since this movie's come out, I haven't really gotten the urge to rewatch again and, and I kind of forgot about it for a while. Uh, so if for no other reason, just the fact that this didn't really stick with me as much as I would have thought, I'm going to say this is a renter. <laughs> Next up, we're going to talk about Promising Young Women, not women, (laughs) Promising Young Woman, singular, only one woman in this movie is promising, and joining us is, of course, our own Promising Young Woman, uh, otherwise known as Inappropriate Young Woman, Jamie. Jamie, you're (laughs) one of our few guests here on Oscar episode. I'm still young, thank you. (laughs) For now. (laughs) Even, Even though everybody thinks that you're younger than me? Yes, that well, even though you're eight years older, yeah, we're gonna keep these to 10 minute segments. Let's invite Jamie on. That won't go wrong. Um, (laughs) one thing I wanted to say really funny about this again, this is no criticism of the movie or anything like that, but uh, you spent the majority of this movie, I'm talking about the majority of this movie, 
saying, how old is this actress? She looks freaking old. She, she does look really <laughs> The character's old. supposed to be 30. Now, the actress is in her mid-30s. Carrie Mulligan's in her mid-30s. She looks like she's probably, like, t- mid-40s to late-40s. Okay, well, let's we'll quickly talk about that, because, again, short segment no, here. No offense if she's listening. Sorry. Uh, yeah, because she's a big listener of the Oscar Network with all of her uh, other performances we've covered. In all fairness, first of all, I think she is supposed to be kind of broken down. She's staying up all hours of the night. I mean, if, if people don't know... The basic premise of Promising a Woman is a bit of a revenge thriller. I would call it more comedy thriller. It, this, it definitely wasn't what I was expecting. Uh, but she's just sort of getting revenge on guys who kind of prey on women. And not what you would expect guys who lurk in back alleys and kidnap women and blindfold them and stuff like that. We're just talking about guys who look for some woman who's maybe a little bit too intoxicating, or intoxicated uh, even, <laughs> take her home, maybe take advantage of her when she's not of sound mind. She basically pretends to be one of these women. Whoever picks her up, she takes them home. And we don't need, half the time, we don't know what she's doing to these guys. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the movie. So she's barely sleeping, explains her appearance to the movie. Also, she's going for this very trashy look too. So just to kind of go along with what you're saying, I think her character is supposed to be young, but she's also supposed to be young who, who's seen some, uh, some long nights and... I don't know where I'm going with this. She's supposed to be a little bit run down. Couldn't there be a better way for her to deal with this, though? Like, <laughs> you know, for, for you know, people that have lost loved ones and things like that. And obviously, you know, I don't want to give away too much about the movie and stuff like that with how this lady dies and who's responsible and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, she, couldn't she have done, like, a charity run or something? <laughs> like, why did she have to waste, like, five plus years of her life just being this miserable well, person and all this other stuff? Well, like, I think it's more I'm, like 10 I'm, years, too. I mean, like, okay, it's the movies, but really. <laughs> like, like... <laughs> can she do a fun run? Like, there couldn't, we go. couldn't she do, like, a walkathon, Karen? Yeah. <laughs> yes, but let me let me quote Billy Garcia, who recapped The Karate Kid with us a few weeks ago. You could do that. It would make more sense, but then you'd have no movie. But I, I just want to say, for this movie all around, it wasn't what I was expecting. I remember telling you what this movie was before we watched it, and I was sort of thinking this was going to be a little bit more thriller. I wasn't thinking Taken like a female version of Taken, but I was thinking maybe Taken minus some of the action. And there's really, like I said, you don't see what she does half the time. You see her go home with these guys, pull a big one over on them, not a big one like that. <laughs> Fool one. them into thinking she she's one way. She drops her panties down and she, draws, <laughs> she, she pulls out a big one. No, nothing like a movie talking about <laughs> sexual assault than to make fun of it. Uh, but no, here's the thing. She, she I'm a mad baby! <laughs> She fools these men, and then you know she's going to do something. Does she kill them? Does she just threaten them? We don't really know. We, we kind of get it near the end, and I think that I'll, I'll save that for the end. We, we kind of get in the end what she's doing, but I think there's something different with all these guys, and I think that's one of the interesting things about this movie. I think it just depends on the personality of the guy and what exactly happens. How she can leverage it, yeah. she because really some all guys she, needs... she Some guys she kind of lets, lets off easy, and you could tell like she knows that they genuinely didn't mean any harm. But she, well, still, she still wants to teach them something. So th- that's the important thing I want to talk about this movie. What I think this movie is more than anything, it's not a revenge thriller. I would call this a movie about assigning blame. Um, you know, a movie with a woman who has too much time on her hands. <laughs> She's got no time on her hands. I think that's part of the problem. Uh, but I-, I think this movie is more, more or less about assigning blame. And I- You go into a movie like this and you're expecting, okay, it's going to be about she wants to get revenge on all these guys. And then you realize... What she's doing is this all kind of ties back to this event that triggered it, not even necessarily her, and she's sort of looking at it saying, who's responsible outside of just the guy that maybe 
you know, uh, raped a woman. The movie really gets deep into, you know what, this person's to blame just for knowing about it and doing nothing. This person's to blame for kind of observing this, knowing that it was going to go down and doing this. This person's to blame for not reporting it. This person's to blame for kind of laughing. This person's to blame just for simply being there, you know? One of the things that really works about this movie is that it sort of points the finger at everybody. And it doesn't do it in a way where it's so heavy-handed where you feel like, you know, oh, this is just, you know, uh, attacking this person, attacking this person. You kind of walk away from this movie not not even necessarily blaming any person one way or the other. You sort of see it from a lot of these people's point of view who maybe aren't 100% to blame, but they're 10% to blame. But then you also see it from her point of view saying, you know what, you could have done something. I think that, you know, it's it's hard to ever say in any situation, black and white, you know, these people are guilty of that and stuff like that. Because if you, if you look at, and I'm not going to give too much away about the movie or anything like that, but you look at a situation where people aren't 100% in their own mind, you know, whether it be just alcohol or, you know, who knows there is drugs there and stuff like that to alter. So they might not have even been 100% coherent. So just because somebody's in the same environment this the same room even they might not necessarily know what's going on or fully understand but you know absolutely if if someone does it's they should speak up and actually talk about it and you know it's funny i i saw one thing about like these tiktok leggings online have you have you seen these tiktok leggings the one look like somebody who's seen things with tiktok leggings they're like uh these leggings that shape your bum really nicely (laughs) No, I, I actually did order some, but I, oh. I, don't, I don't think they're going to look like that. I'm, I'm wearing them because I need gym clothes very badly. Anyway, but I saw this one, and it was actually a woman commenting on this post saying, you know, if, if, a, if a woman wears that out of the house, she's asking for it. And, you know, honestly, that is just such the wrong mindset. Because whether it be a man or a woman, that, that's never okay to take advantage of somebody. Uh, and it's like one of the most disgusting things I've ever read, honestly. If if that happens to someone, yeah, obviously I'd be angry about it. <laughs> well, that answered my question. I um, did. <laughs> I was asking about the other people, not. <laughs> no, no, no. I no, I know, but uh, I'm saying you know it, it's hard to ever say like that. Everybody that was in that room. Well, okay. Let me let me just quickly get to this. Okay, what this movie really goes for is also. Can people change? Should they still be held to blame at, to the same level? If it's 10 years later and they're clearly, you know what, I, I understand. I shouldn't have done that. I was the same way that, that you would say, okay, well, this person was once young and dumb, right? Uh, we're not necessarily saying for a person who raped somebody, oh, that's their excuse. But for other people who maybe, you know, just sort of knew it happened, didn't, it does sort of raise the question, you know, hey, can people change? Should they be held to blame? And I'm not saying that what she does in this movie is right or wrong, but I think it's just it's a movie that that asks these interesting questions about if somebody really they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time and didn't know how to do uh, what to do about it because they were young and dumb. Should we be holding them the same to blame? But then one of the things you get in this movie is that you'll get different people react different ways. Some of these people that she's I don't want to say that she's victimizing now that she's kind of going after. Some of these people are responding in a way where you're like, yeah, you know, I, I didn't realize what was going on. I wasn't smart, and I'm sorry. There, there are people who are very apologetic in this movie, and there's other people who you think are like, they really were not to blame. Like, they played very little, they played a 1% role in this, and then you kind of hear a reaction from them, and you realize, 
yeah, you know what? Maybe they are a bit of a dick. <laughs> you know, yeah. it goes different directions. Now, just very quickly, the ending of this movie. This is what I was sold on. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm 100% in love with the rest of this movie. Now, I really do think some of the best up is the relationship between the, the two lead characters. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I did like the ending, though. And, oh, my goodness. Some of the scenes, though, of just them being a regular couple... I'm like, I would watch this as a romantic comedy. And then you, you add all this extra stuff on there. But the ending, we really were kind of divided on it because, it, again, it goes an unpredictable route. It's very crazy. It's very out there. It's one of these things that where you think you know where this movie's going and then it's like, wow, I did not see that coming. I really liked 90% of this ending. And then there's one sort of last scene on there that throws one extra twist out there where I'm like, that's so Hollywood. Like, I didn't need that. And I'm not even saying it Well, the it entire wraps- movie is so Hollywood, though, because like I said, like... Why would, not, why would anybody go to these lengths? Well, no, it's... it's uh, here's that, the thing. That's what I think this and like is, you said, we wouldn't have a movie if they did otherwise. There's a great scene in this movie that, that perfectly illustrates why you can't always bring it up because they go to a person who is of great importance, who's a person who could have ended this right away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a scene at the college, if you remember. Yeah. And you're like, oh my goodness, here's a person again you would not normally think is to blame, and you're like... Wow, the, something could have been done about this, but people simply aren't heard. But that—that's a thing. Even if it's years later, a person should still okay. be held accountable. The ending, though. Yeah. <laughs> Do you agree with me on this? The climax of this movie is great. The events that take place, how crazy, how insane it gets for a good solid twenty minutes there is great. And then they throw this one extra twist in there that is just unnecessary. When you said this movie is very Hollywood, I, I kind of get what you're saying about that. Even though I, I feel like this is very different from what you'd expect. It's the one of the more Hollywood movies nominated this year because it's not about realism. This movie is definitely supposed to be a little bit outside of reality uh, in the way it's presented and all in the style of it and everything. Well, it's just kind of dramatic, right? Yeah, but it, it kind of reminds me of the dramaticness of like that. That's not really a word, but <laughs> the, of that movie that you said was really good that I just watched. I think I need to rewatch. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's very, yeah. dr- very dramatic, very over the top. Yeah, exactly. This there is a lot of over the topness about this movie. Another word that probably doesn't exist. But it just, it it ends and you're like, that's fantastic. And where they go with the story in the final scene, I kind of get where they're going with, but it's just, it's such like a, let's play the music cue now and let's throw a big, you know, almost M. Night Shyamalan type twist in there. I'm not saying, you know, uh, plants start killing people or anything, but, but it just, the last scene ruined it for me. I think that's what's really going to hold this movie back for me when I do my final rankings. I, I Even do though agree I, with you. I, I, agree. I, I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie. Let me just add to this quickly because I feel like the subject matter of this is very heavy. We've talked about it as a very serious topics in this movie and points of view. This is a funny movie. And I, that, that's the number one thing I don't want people to forget. It is a funny movie. It's a very quirky movie. It's a very entertaining movie. There is humor in this movie that you, it feels should feel uncomfortable, but it actually comes across as lightening the mood and i i think that's one of the things that i really appreciate about this yeah i agree with you would you buy it rent it or bin it mm, i probably wouldn't watch it again so does that mean bin it then well bin it is this movie's garbage don't bother watching it buy it is hey, i love this movie or, i would i'd watch recommend it probably at least to rent it because i think people find it interesting it's just not something i would go out of my way to watch like if i saw it on the pvr that it was on i probably wouldn't watch it see i i'm still gonna say i'm buying this one uh, I probably would have said rent it when we finished watching this movie, but having seen all these movies now, or almost all of them at the time we record this, this is one of the ones that I keep going back to where I'm like, I'm going to remember this movie 10 years from now. A lot of these other movies that maybe I would have walked away from on first viewing thinking, I love this movie, 10 years from now, I'm probably going to forget. I think that's a big difference for me. Hmm. 
Hmm. Hmm. I'm not buying it. All right. <laughs> but you're renting it, and you still enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And you'll be back a little bit later in this episode to talk about the other best picture that you saw. Yep. I'll see you then. And I won't mention anything inappropriate. Maybe. Next up, The Father, the movie that I kept forgetting was nominated for Best Picture. And when I was kind of going through, okay, I have three movies left, I would be like, what is the last movie? I can't remember what this last movie I'm supposed to watch is. And then I'd Google it and I'm like, oh, The Father, that Anthony Hopkins one. Maybe the fact that Anthony Hopkins is in this, which you would think would be a big selling point, is sort of what threw me off. Because if you go through Anthony Hopkins' filmography, he has not exactly been on his game for quite a while now. Uh, and that's no fault of his. I mean, actors, especially when they get older and audiences get more familiar with them, they're not going to get the more high-profile projects. And some of his movies, especially the movie he did uh, last year, which I think he also got a nomination for, The Two Popes, I couldn't even make my way through that movie. It was just, oh, this dreary. And I sort of had a vague idea about what this movie was about. You know, a man sort of coping with Alzheimer's. Olivia Coleman's in it, who won the Oscar, I think, last year or the year before for The Favorite. Amazing actress. I loved her in the TV show Broadchurch. I mean, she's, she's probably the best thing on that TV show. But I didn't have any expectation of this movie. And it was sort of, the, it's the one that I watched very close to the end. Not the last movie that I watched, but very close to the end. And I sort of just, I got to get this out of the way. And I'm glad that I went in with zero expectations. I'm glad that I didn't even expect to really care for this movie. I thought it would be, oh, this is just going to be a, sort of a boring Anthony Hopkins movie. Uh, because I was so blown away by this movie. I mean, it, it is one of those few movies that this year I feel like are going to hold up 10, 20 years down the road. Uh, if this were to go on to win Best Picture, I mean, it would be an incredible Best Picture winner. It's so different from what you expect. There's another movie about Alzheimer's, uh, Still Alice, that a couple of years ago Julianne Moore won Best Actress for. But the movie itself was not that good. It was very average. It was exactly what you'd expect. It was formulaic, uh, wouldn't necessarily be the right word because it was kind of a small indie movie, but it didn't go to great lengths to surprise you. And The Father's the exact opposite. I can't even give away too much. I'm, I'm kind of going to talk about this movie from the point of view of where I was sitting at about two-thirds of the way through this movie. And it is probably the shortest of all the Best Picture nominated movies. 90 minutes, 95 minutes, something like that. It breezes by because Anthony Hopkins himself is so high energy in this movie. I mean, this is the most lively, most charismatic, most charming he's ever been. Uh, and you get this very bipolar Anthony Hopkins. He will go from being extremely charismatic to all of a sudden, you feel almost verbally abusive, just like snap of a finger not only is that intriguing to watch and you just keep what is he going to say next what is he going to do next but just the stylist movie the fact that this movie was directed by a first-time director florian zeller who was a playwright who wrote a stage version of this and and produced a stage version of this years ago and it was really weird because i, I didn't know that until after the movie finished and i started doing research but as this movie was playing, I was I was thinking, you know, I feel like you could do a stage version of this. But then I kept questioning myself. I'm like, how could you actually do this a stage version? Because there is so much cinematic quality that this movie has with the way it's filmed, the way it's edited, and the way the story's told that I don't know how you would pull this off on a stage. So I'd just be curious to see how you would do this on stage. What really makes this movie work is it's not just following the way still Alice did. Here's how a person is going to come into discovering that has Alzheimer's how they're going to cope with that. This drops you right in, you know, probably years into him being diagnosed. And it just sort of allows the audience through the trickery of editing, the trickery of the style of the movie 
to be put in his position. And you're not necessarily supposed to empathize with his character uh, because you're supposed to definitely feel for him. I mean, it's sad to see what he's going through, but he doesn't present himself as a person who is coming to terms with having Alzheimer's or dementia. He's presenting himself as a person who's living with this and how does he deal with this? Does he hide it? I mean, I've, I've known two people who have had Alzheimer's and dementia uh, throughout my life, once when I was a child and once when I was an adult. And I found with both those people now looking back that they would do things to hide this. They would forget something. They would be caught. Oh, what do you mean you don't know who I am? And it's like, oh, no, 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 I'm just joking with you. You get a lot of that in this movie. But then the way the movie is told, I'm not going to say that the timeline is all over the place is in a confusing way. This movie is definitely set up to confuse you at times. You're like, wait, what just happened? Sometimes actors will switch positions. You're going to see one actor playing a role, and then you're going to see another actor playing a role. And it's definitely meant to disorient the audience in the way that this is how this man would be disoriented. Maybe sometimes he is going to see a person and not recognize them. And it's no way done in a way to trick the audience or shock them. When this happens, it always catches you off guard. It's not every five minutes. You might go 20 minutes, and then all of a sudden there's this trick where let's flash back and you realize the scene you've been watching takes place prior to another scene you've been watching. Or let's swap an actor out. And it's just meant to sort of briefly put you in their shoes and be like, wait, this is sort of what it's like. It's one of the most fascinating ways to tell a story. And uh, another movie we're going to talk about a little bit later on, The Sound of Metal, is very similar to this in just being able to put you in the position of the character, being able to put you in the position of the world of what a a person is dealing with uh, under these circumstances. And just through the way the movie's filmed, the way the movie's edited, the way it's presented, it allows the audience to kind of be in their shoes. Uh, Anthony Hopkins has never been more on his game than this. I mean, I, I finished this movie thinking, might this even be better than him as Hannibal Lecter? And a little bit of a you know uh, caveat to that. Silence of the Lambs, he, he's a supporting character in that. He won Best Actor, but he's in like less than 20 minutes of the movie. So I feel like though that definitely has more of an impact. But to be able to have Anthony Hopkins on screen for 96 minutes straight, never lose your attention. Feel like you're watching a guy who's in his 30s just by, based on how high energy he is and not ever have to have a moment where he's sitting there sobbing and feeling bad for himself and dragging the audience down. And I don't mean that in a bad way to say like, you know, oh, we shouldn't recognize that this is hard for people. But it in a way feels more sad to watch a guy just coping with this and covering things up and trying to remain positive, even when he is confused, than it would be to watch a person going through all the melodrama that we would normally get. So this is what's going to be a running trend this year of a lot of the movies we're going to talk about, where I went in expecting one thing, and the movie ended up being something completely different. The story was exactly what I thought. The way the movie was presented, something completely different. So this might actually be the shortest of all the recaps I'm going to do here, reviews I'm going to do throughout this episode. And part of that is because I don't want to give too much away. I mean, I've kind of said how this movie is presented, how it's going to surprise you. And I also said I'm leaving this at the first two-thirds, what I was thinking at the first two-thirds of the movie. Because you do watch all the way to the end, and there are things that are going to surprise you. And once you get to the final scene, it sort of will all click with you. Uh, What am I going to do with this movie? Buy it, rent it, bin it. I mean, this is 100% a buy. I'm very much on the fence about what my favorite movie this year is. Uh, it's between this and one other movie. I'm also on the fence with who the best actor of the year is. It's between Anthony Hopkins and one other, which you're going to hear about later on. So maybe by the time the end of this episode comes, I'll be able to come to a, a firm decision on that. 
but this as the movie that I kind of dreaded watching, had zero interest in, thought, been there, done that, I know what I'm going to get. There is no movie that surprised me more than The Father. So this is 100% a buy, and uh, one of the few movies this year that if it wins, 10, 20 years from now, this will be remembered as one of the great Best Picture winners. Next up, we're going to talk about the sort of Korean, not really Korean, uh, the most American movie that is not really even in English this year, Minari. And we've got a special guest, an Oz Network founder slash occasional co-host here to give us his thoughts straight from Korea, the homeland that this movie does not take place in. Noah Groves is here. Noah, Minari. Yeah, I feel like I'm uh, more Korea-based uh, than Minari is uh, <laughs> yeah. right now, because I'm in Korea. But uh, yeah, how exciting. Eh? We had Parasite last year, and mm. now a Korean Korean movie, <laughs> uh, which, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, I'm an advocate for Korean cinema, and I don't know if I would call this a Korean <laughs> film, but... Uh, yeah, two Korean language uh, wins in a row. That would be cool. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Uh, ever since I, I sort of heard about this movie, I'm like, how? And I even think when I, when I messaged you the other day, I'm like, I don't know if you've seen this or not because it's sort of a Korean movie. Like, how is this movie even received in Korea? Like, did it get a big release? Was it, they make a big deal out of it? Or is this just sort of like, oh, that's some American thing with some Korean actors? Yeah, I think probably a bit more of the latter uh I think it was known, but Parasite was celebrated like crazy. And yeah. I think I talked about, when we talked about Parasite, I, I was at work the day that, that that won, and it was like midday for us. And, mm. you know, people in the lunchtime restaurants were watching the TV cheering and whatnot. <laughs> and uh, That was a big deal. And I feel like this is known, but it's the American Korean thing. It's not mm. the full Korean, but uh actually the week that i watched it which is a while ago now uh my boss who's like a 60 year old uh you know typical korean guy was actually in in our office and was talking to me about oh there's this movie called minari and uh it's about this vegetable and so he was he was well into it my boss approved his description was it's about a vegetable i think that's one of the funniest things about this movie is i spent half this movie thinking so what is minari and then when they introduced it i'm like i don't know if you ever saw the movie with jennifer garner peppermint which is basically like taken (laughs) yeah it's like taken with a mother and then you get to the movie and you're like okay so the name of the movie comes from an ice cream flavor that the daughter ate at the beginning like it's one of these things so that the title you get it sort of at the very end, but you, you end up questioning it for a lot of it. I mean, overall, what were your thoughts on Minari? Yeah, well, well, I will say uh, on the whole vegetable thing, Koreans are very proud about anything that's Korean. So, uh, uh, but, and also on that point of Minari, I remember maybe about four months before I watched the film, uh, it's a bit of a tangent, but I was making some like fresh salsa and, in Korea, it's really difficult to find uh, coriander, or I think you would call it cilantro, maybe? Yeah, cilantro, coriander, yeah. So I was in just like the local small mart, and I was looking for a substitute, and I found, I don't speak Korean, but I can read, uh, 
like Korean pretty well. And I found this thing, Minari. Uh, so I actually was cooking with Minari and then this film came out and I'm like, oh, that's that <laughs> vegetable, that, that weird plant thing that I bought from the supermarket. Uh, so Minari is a thing. Uh, it's not just uh, for this film. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I don't know if it's uh, because of my connection to Korea and it was fascinating for me watching Korean actors because uh, I interact with Koreans every day and seeing how uh, they were in this kind of American situation, which also I'm familiar with. Um, but yeah, it, it was really sweet and I, I could uh, relate or at least understand uh, like the Korean characters, especially the grandma, which oh. maybe we'll talk briefly about. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this film had a lot of heart. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm stealing a, a quote from, I think, Empire Magazine. I don't know if you ever had that. Mm. But I read a, a review maybe 10, 15 years ago, and it stuck to me. It was called The Wizard of Oz Factor. And it's whether or not a film had uh, heart, brain and courage mm. and i think minari fits in the the wizard of oz yeah no i i agree like this is actually one of a very few movies this year where i feel like in any other year any non-pandemic year where we had you know hundreds of movies released this could still be nominated for best picture like it is a great movie i think one of the things that uh i like best about it though is that you, they never quite narrowed down, okay, is this movie told from the point of view of the parents? Is it told from the point of view of the kids? I kind of felt like there were a lot of points where it was told from the kids' point of view because it's sort of just showing, you know, how this move and starting this farm, the two parents completely at odds. Uh, but you don't see, like, the parents blowing up. There's a few scenes where the parents are kind of arguing and everything. But I almost felt like the characters and the movie was always one step ahead of the audience, which I kind of liked. And another obscure reference... Uh, I remember reading a quote from George Lucas years ago and his fascination with Kurosawa and Japanese movies came down to the fact that he was watching these movies, not understanding the culture, not understanding how personalities are different in these other countries and that they didn't feel the need to take the time to explain it to him. So when he made Star Wars, what his influence of the Japanese cinema was, was that he wanted you to feel like you were dropped into this world. You don't know why the characters react a certain way. You don't have to have explanations of everything. And I kind of felt that even though it's just a typical you know, almost pioneer story that takes place in the 80s, they didn't feel the need to explain the dynamics of this family. They sort of briefly mentioned they were in California before that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I felt like it was sort of told from the kids' point of view here and there, because you're watching these kids observe with their parents, but the kids aren't going to know all the business and, you know, uh, where they're losing money and why they, you know, don't want to use city water and all that. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I, I feel like the boy uh, is more or less the viewer. Uh, mm -hmm. We're seeing what's happening through his eyes. Uh, and it's almost like, uh, and I hate to compare it to Parasite because it's got nothing to do with Parasite. But yeah. let's face it, most kind of American viewers or Australian, Canadian They've probably only maybe seen Old Boy and Parasite, mm -hmm. uh, the average viewer. Uh, but it's kind of in that one we were we were sort of dropped into this world that we didn't understand, and now it's watching these characters that this is a world that we understand, and we're getting to witness them uh, almost dropped into our world. Mm -hmm. um, 
But what I love about it so much, and I agree, like there's almost no exposition, which I love. It's just, this is what's happening. It, it almost feels like it starts halfway through the film. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. That's not a criticism. Uh, but I just love how 80, 90% of this film is in Korean. And yet this film is so American. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah. Well, that was a big controversy with the Golden Globes when it was only eligible for the foreign language movie. And uh, I yeah. think there, there were well, so many. Weird. The Golden Globes are always weird like that. Like if it if it is in foreign language, like I think um, Clint Eastwood made Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, yeah. And because he decided he wanted the actors to speak Japanese, it got a foreign language nomination. It's like, but it's not a foreign film. But the big argument was right. like this Minari is the most American movie nominated this year. And you've pigeonholed us into this foreign language category, even though parts of it are in English too, which is weird. And the director is Korean American, right? I, I watched yeah. a few interviews with him. Like he is well, Korean, but he well, grew up a- in America and speaks English and is an Amer and it was made in America. It's an American film. And this is this is semi autobiographical for him too. Like this was sort of his upbringing. And uh, it's funny, I just read this interesting story yesterday where he was saying that uh, he had never even told his parents he was working on this movie till they were already editing because he was worried how they would respond about their life or portions of their life being put on film. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of realism in this movie. You can get that's where it came from. Uh, I mean, the, the nominations it gets, I mean, primarily, I guess, the two uh, acting nominations, Stephen Yoon, who's from The Walking Dead. I only saw like the first two seasons of The Walking Dead, so I briefly... Uh, yeah, me too. Them. And then the other actress, um, uh, you're gonna have to do the pronunciation. Is it Yoon Yujun, the, the grandma? Yoon now, is Yoon she, okay, now apparently she's actually famous in Korea. Like, are you familiar with her? Have you seen her in other things? I don't know her, but the instant that I saw her on the screen, I just instantly knew that she was a famous Korean actress. Oh, yeah. uh, and I'm sure there's maybe something I've seen her in or my co-workers know her but uh i wasn't instantly familiar but i just the moment i saw her i'm like yeah that is a famous korean actress well and, and she was amazing yeah well that's the crazy thing is that there's so much subtlety to this movie like kind of because what we're saying about you know the, the, the stories told from the point of view of the boy and we don't have all that exposition like the characters you don't quite with steven yoon it's really interesting is that he can convey so much emotion in this movie without showing emotion. Like, you get everything that's going on in his head, every decision he's making, and yet he's stone-faced the whole movie. Uh, meanwhile, the grandma is... very Korean, too. Korean well, yeah, male. I, yeah, I, I was actually going to say, you know, I've, I've we have, like, a huge Chinese immigrant population here, and, you know, I, I've had a ton of Chinese friends who've even told me, like, yeah, there, there's a reason why we don't show a lot of emotion. So, I mean, even just other parts of Asia, that's very similar. But the grandma's the exact opposite. She's the one character in this movie who's like big, larger than life. You know, it, that, yeah. that's sort of the, the bone of contention with the grandson that I thought was hilarious is that he's like, why can't you be like a normal grandma? Because she's just sort of, you know, vulgar at times and picking on him, picking on him in a playful way. But like their relationship could be its own movie on its own. Like I loved every scene they had together. And then there's a transition that happens when it goes from these two characters sort of not really clicking, just clicking instantly. And again, it's not like they're hammering in, oh, some big moment where she saves his life or something like that. It's like, it's the simplest thing in the world. And that's kind of what makes this movie work is that every time there's a big shift in this is where the story is going, this is what happens. It's like the smallest thing. And that's kind of what real life is. And to go back to what you were saying about how we have almost no introduction to uh, these 
characters we are almost thrown in. It's this relationship between the grandma and the grandson. It's, you know, you almost forget that they're actors. It's yeah. almost like you're watching a documentary at times. And this is where the film is great based on the cultural differences is the grandma, yes, at times she can be a bit harsh, a bit stern, but never for a second do you think she's not a loving grandma or mm-hmm. never do you think that this character is the antagonist of of the film. Uh, and they do such a great job of that grandma is having lived in Korea for three and a half years. She is so Korean. <laughs> uh, and the things with the, the drinks and everything like that are... Uh, and, you know, a, a Korean grandma will be really stern, but they will love their grandchildren unconditionally. And I think you get that without any dialogue, really, in this film. Um, and a, a bit of a side note, but that Mountain Dew scene where Mountain Dew is just, <laughs> it's like a healthy... That just made me chuckle and feel really warm inside because that... Even though I live in Korea in 2021, that is just, I can so see that that would be a Korean perspective on something like that. Uh, So those little touches too. The the funny thing I found with the Mountain Dew thing, this is what I can relate to is, you know, I kind of got it that the parents buy this and tell the the kids, oh, this isn't for you. And they're like, well, what is it? It's like, oh, it's it's just water from the mountains so that the kids will have no interest in it maybe. uh, I remember I saw this hilarious meme, which as as a parent, you totally get this where parents eating cheesecake and uh, the kids like, oh, can I have some? No, you wouldn't like it. It's spicy. Like I almost again, no (laughs) exposition. But my interpretation is like, yeah, the parents don't tell the kids this is sweet. This is tasty. You'll like this. So the grandma keeps up with the charade. It's like, oh, water from the mountains or whatever. It's fantastic. There is some good humor in here. I mean, mostly with the grandma and maybe a little bit with Will Patton, the the one American character in here is just very off the wall very eccentric but it's not a depressing movie i think that's the other thing is it's it's basically showing like this family struggling and there's no point where i felt like this is a downer and everything i think the ending more than anything you kind of just see this shift where the main characters all sort of just instantaneously swap positions where where their priorities are different and this movie could have done without that ending and it's still a great movie but you throw that ending in there and you're like, oh, I totally see what they did there. Again, it's so subtle and it 100% makes the movie. I completely agree. But even as you were saying, there's a lot of humor. Uh, it's not a comedy movie, but there is a lot of humor and there's a ton of heart. Uh, but even even with the end as well, no spoilers, is you sympathize and uh, your heart hurts, but it still doesn't seem dark or it doesn't seem... Mm-hmm. There is so much optimism in this yeah. film. So even by the end, these characters go through struggles, and that's not a spoiler. Throughout the whole film, they go through struggles. And even when there's a big struggle towards the end, you still more you sympathize and you, your heart breaks, but you more feel optimism more than anything mm-hmm. and hope. And at by the by the time the film ends, you feel like they're gonna be okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent agree. And and I think even there, there's sort of like, I'm not going to say two endings, but you think, oh, okay, I know how this is going to end. And you're like, oh, wait, there's another twist to this or whatever. Even when it's at the lowest point, I'm still thinking like, this is a happy ending. Like I, I, I get what they did here. I think that's, that's one of the uh, best things about this movie. Uh, before we go, we have to get, uh, oh, I'm going to ask you two questions. 
one, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to buy it, rent it, bin it? Yeah, I mean, I went in with almost zero to no context of what this film was going to be. And I watched it purely based on my connection to Korea. I live in Korea and I heard about this film. But yeah, I would buy it. Uh, I would happily watch this film again. And uh, any hype that this film has got, to be, to be frank, I think is well and truly deserved. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot in this and I would love to maybe watch it again after I've left Korea and uh, see how I react to it then. But once you make move to Arkansas? For... <laughs> as much as we say there's a lot of optimism, uh, this setting is pretty bleak at times, <laughs> I feel. But, but, but yeah, uh, maybe not Arkansas, but yeah, it would be interesting to revisit this film. And I think, you know, I live in Korea and I've got this connection, but you seem to be echoing a lot of what I'm mm-hmm. saying anyway. So I feel like even without that, I would have enjoyed this film. Uh, I just got that little extra kind of relation to the film that maybe a lot of average viewers don't have. Um, but yeah, I, I would buy this. Like if this won, I would be happy. And I think it would be deserving as well. Not just cause I live in Korea. Yeah. I, I'm going to buy this. I think that this is again, one of a few movies this year that, if it wins, people aren't going to look back on it and say, oh, that's the movie that won during the pandemic year where there was less competition. I mean, they'll say, yeah, this is a deserving winner. Uh, last question. Uh, give us your favorite Korean vegetable. Is it Minari? Is it something else? <laughs> give my little story about Minari. And uh, it worked. It, it wasn't <laughs> cilantro, but it worked. Uh, but, you know, I'm a sucker for kimchi. Uh, I don't know if you've had kimchi. Oh, yeah. But- uh, but there's, there's this thing here uh, in Korea that comes with almost every meal and it's yellow radish. Uh, and when we get off the call, I'm going to do some delivery food and I guarantee no matter what I, I order, I'm going to get this yellow radish. And it's just these thin slices of radish that are yellow and they're just sweet. And no matter what meal you have, it complements so well as a palate cleanser before and after. So... I'm putting a vote for the, the <laughs> humble yellow radish. I, I'm a fan. And coming soon, Cooking Korean with Noah Groves, the podcast. <laughs> I, w- I was once told that I'm the only person, foreigner, that another friend has known that actually bought the yellow radish in packets from the supermarket <laughs> and not just at the restaurant. So, <laughs> I'm a fan. If anyone's tried the yellow radish, uh, you can relate maybe. Noah, thanks for joining us for your annual Korean movie check-in. <laughs> we, we, we have potentially some plans for some other stuff in the future. And people may even hear from you later in this episode, very briefly, on another thing, another movie that you did watch. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that as a surprise. Thanks for having me. Uh, and again, two years in a row, we're talking about Korean slash not really Korean uh, films. So wouldn't it be great? Uh, two wins in a row, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for Minari. Nomadland, which a lot of people are saying is the front runner to win Best Picture. It, <laughs> it won the Golden Globe. Uh, I honestly don't know if this is going to win Best Picture. I feel like there's a lot of other movies that have sort of come out of the gate very close to the end. How do I feel about this movie? I'm not even 100% sure. <laughs> uh, I, I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of big movie buffs out there to be like, oh, you're 100% wrong. You just don't get this movie. I mean, I get this type of movie. I get this genre. The fact is, this movie is 
very simple. It is about mundane parts of this life and the plot basically being plotless. It's it's following a type of person, a, a type of movement that happened, you know, 10, 15 years ago uh, that most people aren't familiar with. I like movies like this where, hey, I've never seen this type of person before. I've never seen this type of culture. I'm interested in just the regular everyday things, just seeing how a person does this, how they live, how they move, how they finance themselves. But I, I something about this movie didn't 100% click with me. And well, let's get a second opinion. We have Noah on the line here, uh, very briefly with us. He's got somewhere to be. Noah, what did you think of Nomadland? The thing is, I don't even know if I like that or not. I'm not going to be able to talk about that. <laughs> and, and just jokingly, kind of exactly how I feel. And again, I don't dislike this movie. I mean, it's a good movie. I just don't feel like it's a great movie. And it's definitely not what a lot of people are making it out to be, like this masterpiece. Uh, I don't feel like this is a movie that people are going to remember 10, 20 years from now. It's going to be echoed over and over again, especially in the 2020 year, where a lot of people are just going to look back on the Oscars and look back on all the movies of this year and say, well, this movie got attention because 75% of the movies that were supposed to come out didn't come out. Uh, I'm kind of glad this movie did get attention because there is something interesting about it, but it doesn't really amount to what I hoped that it would. And... I, I, I don't, this is going to be one of the hardest ones to actually talk about. Uh, for one thing, I went into this really optimistic. I mean, Frances McDormand is what sold me on this movie. Obviously, she played the lead character in the, the movie version of Fargo, which is one of the great, not just female acting performances, one of the great acting performances of all time. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, Three Billboards, she won again, which again, blew me away in that movie. This is not Fargo. It's not three billboards she's not playing a very larger than life character she's playing a very simple character almost too simple i feel like where i never quite clicked with her there is a lot of good that france mcdormand does in this movie it, she doesn't have a lot of people to talk to a lot of it is just facial expressions how she reacts how she looks at something I get that that's kind of the appeal of the movie. Again, I like movies like this. I, I could name a ton of movies. I can name movies that aren't even great that most people don't re realize exist like this that I was fascinated by just to see the mundane parts of life. But this just never took off for me. Now, the idea behind this movie, I feel like, is more interesting than the movie itself. This is basically presenting people who, after the recession uh, in 2008 they sort of took to van living or RV living as a way because maybe they didn't have the money for it. Now, what I appreciate about this movie is it never goes as far as say is like, these people are living in a van. France McDormand is living in a van because she went broke or she can't afford a house. That's definitely a reality of her character. That's definitely a reality of a lot of these people's stories. That's probably what led to this movement. But the characters in this movie really do go out of their way to say, hey, this is a simpler life. We we want to live this life. It's kind of like now the big trend of tiny house living, if you've ever seen that. People who will go out of their way to build the smallest a house the size of one room where your bed folds out of the, the wall and there's all these little clever things. I find that very fascinating. I couldn't do that with three children, but I find it very fascinating. Uh, so what really works about this is that the characters are never saying we're doing this because we lost all of our money and, and the recession and we can't get work. And the only work we can get is just seasonal work, which is sort of a thing with France. Where she just travels around. I can get a month's worth of work here. I can move to this city, get a month's worth of work here. But the characters are positive about it. And 
I feel like after watching this movie, what really does work is that the real people, and there are real people in this movie because this is based on a nonfiction book that explored these nomads, these people who just decide we want the simple life of living out of a van, living out of an RV, and going out of a way to say we don't want to live in a home. Frances McDormand has a line early in this movie where she says, I'm not homeless, I'm houseless. There's difference. This is a choice. And I love the idea that these people just sort of make this choice. But I would rather watch those people. I would rather watch this movie as a documentary. I don't feel like it ever feels real enough. Uh, and it, it is very real as far as what you expect. This is not Hollywood. This is not cinematic. It's very real in that you're just watching a person living their life. It, it's not flashy. It's not edited all over the place and, and lots of graphics and, and sound effects and stuff like that. It feels sort of documentary-like, but I just personally would rather watch the documentary version of this. And some of the other characters in this movie, I feel like, are more interesting. They're not playing themselves, but a lot of the characters from the book that this was based on, the nonfiction book that just followed these real-life nomads, appear in this movie as sort of fictional versions of themselves. I like those people better. <laughs> and again, I'm a huge Frances McDormand fan. She's the reason I wanted to watch this movie. But I would rather watch a documentary with these real people living the exact same mundane life, living the exact same storyline that this movie portrays, even though it's not really a storyline, to just be able to watch the real people because that is interesting to me. This sort of having no story wasn't as interesting. And again, I don't mind movies that don't necessarily have a story. I'll, I'll give a very obscure movie here. There's a movie that Robert Altman made uh, in the mid-2000s called The Company, which was completely plotless, just completely following the mundane aspects of life of just professional dancers in this dance company. And there was no plot to it. It's just, oh, how do they wake up in the morning? How do they stretch? And I found that movie incredibly fascinating to watch. I didn't necessarily get that with the movie. And again, it's not to say this is a bad movie. It's a good movie. It's just not a great movie. Uh, will France McDormand win another Oscar? I mean, if she does, great. I think there's definitely better performances in the Best Actress category. Is Chloe Zhao going to win Best Director? Maybe. I, I wouldn't be crazy if she does because I feel like there are much better movies and much better uh, the way that some of these other movies that we're going to talk about that you haven't even heard about yet, the way that they present the same type of simple story, the same type of mundane aspects of life, definitely put me more in the shoes. Uh, and I'm glad that this movie is not the same as something like Sound of Metal or The Father. Uh, but it's just, it didn't 100% work for me. So buy it, rent it, bin it. I'm not going to say bin it because I, I did watch this. And even though I couldn't watch it in one sitting just because it was late at night and I was falling asleep, not because the movie was boring, uh, but just because it was late at night and I was falling asleep, I wasn't bored by this movie completely. I was interested to see where it was going to go. I was interested to see how it was going to end. Once it finished, I was just like, yeah, that's it. It's a movie done you know so it's gonna end up being lower on my list once we get to the end but still rent it in the end even though i would much rather watch the documentary version of this with the real people as opposed to this fictionalized version almost presenting itself as a documentary and jamie you made it back did i yes oh, yeah, i'm here and we're talking about another one that you watched which is to me i'm just gonna say it now uh, the hills are alive with, with the, the sound of metal. That's not what I was going to say, but let's go with that. Sound of metal. This is one that I think a lot, I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but a lot of the movies that uh, I've watched this year, I kind of went in thinking this was going to be like, and it was, but it completely surprised me. This one, totally not what I expected. 
yeah, uh, in same. such a good way. Uh, same. Maybe I was expecting this to be more about a musician losing his hearing. That's the first 15 minutes of the movie. I mean, after that, it really just becomes what is life like for somebody who just loses their hearing and really has to accept the fact that they're going to be losing everything they have in life at the exact same time. There's so much that you don't think about, really. Well, and here's the thing. This movie, it still would have worked, but it would have been very formulaic. It would have been very predictable if it was just a movie about a guy losing his hearing. But they add something in there, which is it's sort of a major part of the movie, but not really the idea that this guy's a recovering addict. And one of the first scenes they just sort of introduced the idea of, could this push him over the edge where he has a relapse? And you think, well, for somebody who's a recovering addict, they say, Hey, you've just lost your career. You've just lost your livelihood. You've just lost your hearing. Maybe it would push you over the edge. You find this middle ground where he just, he goes to this place, which is almost a cross between a rehab clinic and a community for, you know, hearing impaired people. Almost like therapy, really. It, it's, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's its so interesting. And again, that's not what I expected. This movie never really gets that deep back into the whole music part of it. And a musician, it sort of just becomes a thing of, well, this is what triggers him to kind of have this meltdown. And then it's just sort of, well, how does he start accepting the fact that now he can't hear, now he's not going to be able to do this. And how does he respond to that? I think that, and I think in a weird way, even though what kind of had me interested in this movie was the idea of a metal drummer who loses his hearing, if that's where this movie had gone, I don't think I would have liked it as much. And you know what's really amazing about the movie that I actually didn't think about until like today, um, and we watched it a little while ago already, is uh, that, um, you know, it doesn't really show that much of their relationship together as a couple before he loses his hearing. But you believe how much he loves her and how much she means to him and stuff like that and how serious he is about her and everything. And that's not giving anything away about the movie because you can clearly see they're a couple in the beginning there that everything is fine and then he loses his hearing. But, you know, it's just, it's amazing when you look at the things that just everything just seems so what what's the word for it it's like natural legitimate you yeah know, like like this could just be like the story of a real person yeah that you're watching on tv if that makes sense this is gonna be another running trend uh of this entire episode but a lack of exposition i think is is gonna become what our new modern of movies is based on because time and time again here no and i talked about it with minari there's not a lot of exposition with that movie. They just sort of drop you into it, and you're catching up with the movie. And it's the same thing with this. They don't bother to explain their relationship. There's things that you aren't even clear to you until you get to maybe the last 15 minutes of the movie. Well, yeah, and I, I even had questions even at Even the, when it ended. Yeah, the, at yeah. the end of the movie. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, there's so much going on in this movie, but really it comes down to one performance, and there are good and bad with that. Uh, there are a lot of movies um, that... It's so based on one person's performance, and you think to yourself, without this actor, the movie wouldn't have worked. I feel like this movie works even without the lead actor, Riz Ahmed, but he is so incredible in this movie. Oh, yeah. He and is... I actually really love that guy from the de- the Death Clinic. If, oh, if, yeah. And if, if that's the right way to word it, I don't know. Is that Community, whatever. Is um, that the right way? I don't want to be offensive to anybody. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, but here's the interesting thing about that guy, okay? But he, he also, he knows sign language. I don't know if he's hearing impaired himself, hmm. uh, but he also knows sign language. This movie decided to use a lot of real people. They wanted to use 
real deaf people, real people. Like, I, I'm guessing a lot of the classroom scenes we see. And here's the funny thing. There are parts of this movie that might lose some audience members because it does go for a while where you feel like, okay, I'm seeing him in a classroom full of children learning sign language. I'm seeing him, you know, uh, teaching drums to some kids. And you're like, eh, am I just going to keep watching all these events? And I've seen some reviews that criticize maybe there's not much screenplay here. But it's all about just getting inside this guy's head. And yeah. he's, he's, Riz Ahmed plays this in a way where he's so intense, but like he always feels approachable. And it's very odd to be able to get that. If, if you have an intense character, somebody who's definitely on edge, somebody who lost their hearing, mm-hmm. who has moments where they completely freak out in this movie, they, they, they start smashing things, they're intense, they're, they're almost borderline violent at times, mm-hmm. you would always think, you know what, I'm standoffish with them. And whenever you see him interact with people, He's short with them. You can tell he's uncomfortable. But, like, you still love this guy. Like, I, I found I it weird I, that I really liked him. I don't think you fully understand it, though. As we were talking about, I don't I don't think you fully understand it until the movie actually does end. Yeah. And then, then you realize... This is of, like a closing moment movie. Like, it's like watch re- the last second. You realize the journey that he's come through at that point, if that makes sense. I know it probably sounds cheesy to say it that way, but... It does sound cheesy. Yeah. But Please I, take it back. I'm embarrassed to be sitting next to you. <laughs> but I love cheese. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, the more cheese, the better, but no, it's such simple things with this movie. Like, you know, uh, it's not going to give anything away to say this because we already mentioned that he was, you know, uh, welcomed into that community there with the people there that have their hearing impaired. And, you know, he, he's trying to, um, uh, get money to try to get a surgery. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's not... That's the conflict of the movie. And that that's not a, a big thing to reveal, but, he, you know, he, here he is, and he's selling off everything from his band and stuff like that to try to make money, you know, he, his tour bus and everything inside of it to try to get money to, to, to get this. And it's such a simple thing. It's like, the, it's not super creative, but again, like you said, it's just everything through his life that he's going through and you start to really get attached to this guy and well, feel for him. And, and, and again, the lack of exposition that, that works in movies right now, um, he doesn't ever verbalize what his plans are. You just see him do things. So, Or, or even his thoughts, his anger. Exactly. Yeah. He, 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 there does, are... he, does, he doesn't ever get it out. And that's why it's so fascinating to watch Riz Ahmed do this performance because he can you understand what he's going through. But like, there are so many moments in this movie when he starts doing things like you you say he's you think he's trying to raise money or whatever, but he hasn't been able to tell that to anybody because he can't talk, no. right? Uh, and, he's, and he's I cut honestly off from wasn't sure. I wasn't sure where they were going with that. I wasn't sure if yeah, he, you're like, is he selling it for drugs? What is exactly? He doing, right? I wasn't sure. Yeah, and. When when you do get later on where they start revealing these things to you, it also brings up some of those questions like we kind of talk about promising a woman. Completely different thing from like sexual assault and, you know, at what level can people be blamed even if they're not directly involved in that? But it's also this movie presents this question of, okay, so is it right for him to want to be able to hear again, to want to be able to go on with life as it was before? Is it right for another person to say, you know what, I'm not disabled because I'm deaf? That's not a disability. It's just a way of life, and you know we can have a better way of life for this. It's just these conflicting ideas that some of the characters have. But again, they never hammer it home and try to make it such a big debate. It's like this is just life. It's different for each person. You know, it's really funny going through this entire movie, and again, everything is so simple and just kind of implied mm-hmm. that it doesn't even raise questions. Like they don't even have a conversation about like, <laughs> are, are they still going to be together? You know 
because now he's not what he was. Yeah. And, and that's not to say he's less or whatever, just, you know, things change and people change. It's kind of like, you know, if, if one day you were, you know, in a wheelchair or something like that, or you couldn't hear or you couldn't see or, or something like that, you know, uh, would I still be with you type of thing? And they didn't even have that conversation. So this movie's nominated for, let me count this, one, two, three, four, five, six, six Academy Award nominations. It's nominated for sound, which I think is one of the best things about this movie. I mean, you would think a small movie like this is kind of the year of COVID where you feel like there's no big movies. This is a small movie that just through the sound design of being able to put you in the world of what does it sound like? There's a scene that's very simple where there's just a kid on the top of a slide who's banging on the slide. Yeah. And he's at the bottom. Neither of them can really hear it, but they kind of find a way through the sound to have the audience hear the vibrations. There's other scenes where, you know, he's holding a conversation and he can't hear the person and you're kind of hearing what it would sound like for him. They sort of jump in and out of that all the time, which is great. Other nominations it gets, film editing, amazing in this movie. Obviously original screenplay. Picture, best actor for Riz Ahmed. He's my choice right now for best actor. I mean, everybody's saying Chadwick Boseman and I'll kind of get to him and, you know, some of my feelings about Chadwick Boseman winning. Great performance by Chadwick Boseman, but I don't think people are going to be talking about that 10 years from now. I feel like Riz Ahmed's performance in this is 10 years from now. People are going to be like, the guy from Sound of Metal. Well, and how many movies are there out there that really, you know, showcase you being able to kind of be in the shoes of someone who has lost yeah. their hearing. It's it's it's, it's a unique. Different, you know what this movie kind of reminds me of? Now, there's another movie out this year that, you know, also sort of presents a person going through a change, the Anthony Hopkins movie, The Father, which is about Alzheimer's. But I actually found this was more similar to another movie about Alzheimer's that came out a few years ago called Still Alice that Julianne Moore won Best Actress for, which was just sort of about this woman having to realize, hey, I'm early onset Alzheimer's, and what's a process somebody goes through for that? Mm-hmm completely different type of movie but i love movies like this where it's like i wouldn't have thought of making a movie about that but it's actually really fascinating to watch last nomination i don't even know how i didn't even realize this even though i've been following the oscars the guy that you mentioned the guy who plays the leader of this you know rehab clinic whatever it is the community he's nominated for best supporting actor i'm so happy to see that now i'm like i'm really pulling for him because he is again so great in this movie he's amazing and you see in the scenes that he talks to him kind of the last time in the movie uh how much he actually cares for him and it's it's something where he doesn't say it it's just his face well again we're dealing with deaf characters and that's what what, uh, i was kind of getting at earlier these characters can't necessarily the lengths they have to go through in this movie where sometimes there's a microphone that picks up what one person's saying translates it on a screen yeah. and even then it's sometimes not accurate or even just like the 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 very quiet mouthing that people yeah. do sometimes when they sign like yeah type of thing yeah some sometimes people are just sort of quiet mumbling sometimes people are speaking very audibly but because a lot of these characters they can't communicate there are scenes where it's you know you don't get the relationship they have one last thing i kind of want to add on here just talking about what you said earlier about how you really see this guy at the end of the movie and you don't know how he's going to respond to situations. You don't know what he's thinking. Yeah. A large chunk of this movie is about him just sitting in a room doing nothing and writing down his thoughts. And you don't see what he writes down half the time. And, and I, Just being able to be quiet and be still. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things, the more this movie progresses, everything he, he does, you do always have those questions. Is this the right choice? Because you don't get to hear his thoughts. You don't get to hear him run it off of anybody. I've talked about a lot of other movies, the importance of always having to have a sounding board. If you just have a character on their own, it doesn't always work because you need somebody for them to play off of. 
And this is evidence that you can make it work without a character having somebody to play off of it. Oh, come on. They did that in Star Wars with Yoda. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Yoda never talked to anybody, right? Uh, But can we just say, let's go Riz Ahmed win the Oscar, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. You're going to buy this movie, rent it, Bennett? I I would actually buy this movie. I am totally buying this movie. This is an odd year in that no matter how you look at it, it's going to be remembered as the COVID year. You know, a, a small chunk of movies are released. A lot of the movies that did get released are super low budget like this. Probably wouldn't have gotten noticed in any of the year. I'm going to say this is one of the few movies this year. You put this up in any other year, this probably still gets a Best Picture nomination and deserves it. Yeah, I think so too. I, I love, uh, you know, it's funny. I love the characters. Yeah. Yeah, and not not even just the, the lead character. Even some of the minor ones like you mentioned. Yeah. 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 Great movie. Great movie. Lots of cheese. <laughs> very close to the end now mank the biopic of herman mankwitz the screenwriter of citizen kane let me just start by saying this this is not a good movie i don't like this movie at all uh david fincher directed this movie it should be you know hitting the ball out of the park uh but to be perfectly honest i don't think david fincher is always that consistent i think he's been very hit and miss i think the girl with the dragon tattoo was a very average movie. I feel like Gone Girl was you know, 75% good and then 25% bad. Uh, I think The Curious Case of Benjamin Button is a downright awful movie, and I would put Mank in the category of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. This is not good Fincher. One of the big problems of the movie, I mean, her Mankiewicz, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane, if you know the real story about Citizen Kane, you'll have slightly more appreciation for this movie. I know the story about Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane... I think it made my top 50 list of best movies when we uh, did last year. I mean, it has over and over again on almost any type of critics list been named the greatest movie ever made. Uh, And I love that movie so much, but I also love the making of it. When I pop up my DVD for Citizen Kane, sometimes I'm torn between watching Citizen Kane the movie and watching the making of Citizen Kane because the idea of the story being based sort of around a real person and all the drama about getting the movie made is almost more interesting than the movie itself. And that's talking about what's known as the greatest movie ever made, the real story behind it. There have been movies made about the making of Citizen Kane. This movie isn't exactly that. Uh, This is just about the screenwriter, and you sort of see where some of the inspiration comes from. If you don't know the making of Citizen Kane, this movie is going to be painful to watch. If you know the true story about the making of Citizen Kane. This movie's still going to be painful to watch. It's just going to be slightly more tolerable. And and if you, a couple of years ago, heard uh, me talk about Gary Oldman uh, when he did the Winston Churchill movie, you know, I'm a massive Gary Oldman fan. I mean, to the point where if Gary Oldman's in a movie, that's all I need. I will watch it for Gary Oldman. I love everything Gary Oldman does. This might be my least favorite Gary Oldman performance ever. And it's not too much of a knock against him. I feel like he created a character that is definitely... Uh, a presence that he has but there's just no material in this movie it's it's the most boring presentation of the making of citizen kane you can get was herman mankiewicz an interesting guy maybe Uh, there's parts here and there where i feel like i i like this guy i would watch a biopic about this guy but i almost would rather watch a mank movie that does not involve the making of citizen kane because even though I'm sure this is true and that he took a lot of inspiration from these real events he had with like the real 
with the real Hearst, uh, who was obviously the, the, the real person who was the basis for the character of Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane. I want to just see this guy living his life and how he interacts with people. Some of the party scenes he has where he's the life of the party, those are great to watch. Some of the scenes that take place during election time, those are great to watch. Anything that involves the making of Citizen Kane where he's writing it and then they're just constantly flashing back to, this is where the inspiration came from. It just sort of, to me, felt like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to see that this one moment in Citizen Kane, this was the origin of it. I couldn't have cared less. And this movie was painful to get through. I mean, I talked about Nomadland, how I had to watch that in multiple sittings. And to be honest, this year, I think just because you can't go to the movie theaters, uh, you have to watch all these movies at home. There's great options. You, this one was obviously released on Netflix. Same with Trial of Chicago 7. Other things, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, Nomadland. I mean, you could stream these movies. You are sort of set up, well, I don't have to watch this in one shot. And because Jamie and I have three children who are very noisy and very loud and uh, don't keep the best schedules and have some sleeping problems, we don't really have the luxury of watching any movie start to finish. But Nomadland, even though it wasn't the best movie as far as I was concerned, and it wasn't the greatest thing I'd ever seen, I could have watched that in one sitting. I was talking about that. I could not watch this in one sitting. I got halfway into this movie and stopped. I was on vacation that week. I had all the time in the world to just sit there and watch a movie. I mean, kids are playing all around me. I was basically just on babysitting duty. Is Make sure nobody burns down the house. Just make sure that they don't pull out a knife and try to stab each other, uh, which may, may or may not happen one day. Who knows with our children? Uh, but I was just being able to watch this movie. I could have sat in one shot. Halfway through, I'm like, I can't do it right now. I'm just going to put it away. And it took me the rest of the week to pick the rest of this movie up. It is just not good. On a technical level, it is beautiful to look at. It's shot in black and white. Uh, the production values are amazing, like you get with any David Fincher movie. With Curious Case of Benjamin Button, it's the exact same thing. But this movie is just not good. And I'm frustrated that Gary Oldman uh, is nominated for this movie. As a huge Gary Oldman fan, it pains me to say that because there is no substance here. To me, this is almost like when Daniel Day-Lewis got nominated for Lincoln and won for Lincoln. Great performance, but the material is garbage. And I don't feel like anybody should be nominated just because, wow, they, they had this larger-than-life persona. They, they really had a quirky way of delivering this bad material. I don't think that anybody should be nominated. I think that you should be having good material to play with. If you're going to get a nomination, it should be a great performance with good material. You should be elevating the material, not elevating the ma bad material. But you should just be elevating good material. Every year that we've done these, there's always been one movie that I think I've binned. The one year where I binned two movies uh, was probably the year of Bohemian Rhapsody and Vice. Uh, and I sort of went into 2020 thinking, oh, there might be a few movies I've been here. This is going to be the only movie I've been. I'm going to spoil it for any of the other movies that are still to come here, uh, which is one movie. This is the only movie I'm going to bin. But it's going to be a hard bin. Uh, to me, this is not as bad as Vice and Bohemian Rhapsody. Those movies had no business being nominated for Best Picture. Uh, this is definitely more boring than those movies, though. Uh, so all around, not just as in taking into consideration as an Oscar contender, as a potential Best Picture winner, is this a bin-worthy movie. If this was never nominated for Best Picture, if I went out to see this movie just for the entertainment value... David Fincher is delivering a movie that's sort of going to be about, you know, how Citizen Kane came together. This is still a bin-worthy movie just for entertainment. It is boring. It is not interesting. It is the wrong way to present a story. It's a great personality, and you should have just done a biopic. It's David Fincher's most pretentious, self-indulgent point. This is a bad movie, and I'm sad this is nominated for Best Picture because... 
uh, even as one of the higher budget and more high profile movies, I feel like this is going to be the movie that if it somehow won, people are going back on and say, well, that was the winner of the 2020 year, which is just unfortunate. This movie also has no shot at winning. I don't even think Gary Oldman has a shot at winning. I have not heard for Gary Oldman to be nominated for a huge performance like this. And when I say huge, I mean, again, larger than life. He's very out there. It's very charismatic at times. Uh, but for him to be nominated for any movie, especially a movie this big in a David Fincher film, and to be getting zero buzz, that kind of tells you what the movie is. So, bin this movie, bin this movie, bin this movie. And now here we are at the last movie, which is none other than Judas and the Black Messiah. And it's actually interesting going from the first to last, because the two movies are weirdly connected in a small way. Obviously, Trial of the Chicago 7 was the first movie out of these eight Best Picture nominees that I watched. Judas and the Black Messiah was the last of the eight Best Picture nominated movies that I watched. And that's not the weird connection. The weird connection is that one of the characters in Trial of Chicago 7 and the events of the Trial of Chicago 7 are actually kind of loosely referenced in this movie and play a minor plot point. That's uh, Bobby Seals, the Black Panther, who was one of the ones on trial in Chicago 7, uh, does play a small part in this, even though his character isn't seen. That's sort of where the comparisons would end. Uh, Another movie that I went into this really thinking about just sort of knowing the plot, the plot of this movie being that there is, it's a true story of a member of the Black Panther Party who worked as an informant for the FBI to bring down the leader of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. The comparison would be Black Klansmen a couple of years ago, which was kind of the polar opposite of that, where you had an undercover police officer infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan, trying to bring it down from the inside. Really, that's the only similarity between these movies, is that it, it's a true story dealing with an insider. Obviously, otherwise, these are completely different movies. And this is what I'm going to put like right in the middle category. I don't think that this is as strong as the top three movies that I have, which I'll kind of run down later on. Uh, it also really doesn't have any major flaws to it. If I'm going to say there's one major flaw to this movie, it's the same major flaw I would uh, give to a lot of true story or biopic movies, and that's that it takes place over a long period of time, not necessarily five or ten years, but at times it almost feels like, hey, we're going to show you a few events, then we're going to time jump, and then we're going to kind of skip over this part. And that's something that even though the movie itself doesn't feel like it's part of a miniseries, to me that always sort of just takes me out of a movie, which I expect a movie to be a two-hour experience, one consistent story, one consistent experience. And it almost makes you feel like, yeah, you know, I could have done this in a miniseries. I could have watched three parts. And in some cases, that's actually credit to the movie. Like in this, the story is interesting enough that when they start to get into those periods in the middle where the lead character is in jail briefly, you start to feel like, okay, well, let me see a little bit more about that. The fact that it's not one continuous story does take you a little bit out of the movie experience, but that's just a minor complaint. The star of this movie, Daniel Kaluuya, who uh, had also starred in Get Out a couple years ago and got nominated for Best Actor in Get Out, uh, he's, I would say, for the majority of this movie, the real star. Like, you're watching this, he is absolutely electric. He's electric not only when he's doing his public persona as uh, the chairman of this uh, Black Panther Party, where he's giving these massive speeches and rallying the troops and all that. But just equally, he's completely electric in the scenes where he's calm and he's quiet and he's almost saying nothing at all. Uh, There's uh, a part of the movie which is just sort of dealing with him and him meeting his wife and then him and his wife before they have a baby. And those quiet scenes, he's just as captivating. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya is an absolutely incredible actor who I think even when we saw Get Out, we said this guy is going to be a massive star. He just, he, he comes across so different 
from so many of the young actors you see out there. He, he is a little bit old to be playing this character. As we do wrap up the movie, they kind of go through some of the true events. And the real character uh, where this movie takes place would have been probably between the ages of 19 and 21. I don't quite buy him as 19 to 21 years old, but that also makes me appreciate the real story more to think that everything this guy accomplished before the age of 21. Uh, now, as I said, he's kind of the main star, but this movie's split. It's two characters. He plays the guy who's he plays the black messiah in this movie the judas the uh informant who's working inside the black panther party but actually working with the fbi to kind of bring down uh the character the, the lead character of dan Kalua, is uh lakeith stanfield who i had seen in one or two things prior to this but wasn't really on my radar at all and kind of like in this movie you're sort of watching him and thinking, okay, this guy's okay. And I knew going in, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And I didn't quite get it. And then it's really, as you get close to the end of the movie, I'm not going to say it's like one big moment. It's just a slow progression. When you get to probably the last half hour, 45 minutes of the movie, when everything starts weighing on this character. And that's kind of the big difference with Black Klansman. Black Klansman, the police officer that Adam Driver plays, has no problems with the fact that he is bringing down the Ku Klux Klan. In this case, this character who really was just sort of introduced to the Black Panthers as an informant. It's not like they got somebody who was already on the inside. It does start to weigh on him. And when you get to the end of the movie, you see how heavily it really did weigh on him. They don't even show in this movie. Like, he's Stanfield. Once you get to that last half hour, 45 minutes, I mean, he kind of becomes the star. So it's appropriate that both these actors got an Oscar nomination, but even more confusing, neither of them are nominated for Best Actor. And I think that is one of the big controversies of this movie is that they don't have a lead actor. Now... I think it's okay if you were to have both actors nominated for Best Actor. But both of these actors are nominated for Best Supporting Actor. There's nobody else in this movie who is the lead actor. It, it really, they should have just decided to put maybe Daniel Kaluuya up for the Best Actor and Lakeith Stanfield up for Supporting Actor or do it the other way around. Or just put them both up for lead. The fact that they're both supporting just feels weird. Like, there is no lead actor in this movie. There's another actor I'm a huge fan of in this movie. That's Jesse Plemons, who was on Friday Night Lights. Uh, he was on Fargo Season 2. And every time he pops up in a movie, I'm like, why is this guy not on anybody's radar yet? Why hasn't he been nominated for an Oscar? And I think you could have even put him up for an Oscar nomination in this movie. You know, he plays kind of the FBI agent. And one of the interesting things about this movie that uh, I think separates it from others is that they don't go so hardcore in trying to convince you these characters are right or wrong. You know, the Black Panthers, they do present real case here for, hey, they're misunderstood in certain ways, or at least different chapters are going to have different philosophies. And the Fred Hampton character, the Daniel Kaluuya one, uh, who's the chairman of the Illinois chapter, you know, he he is different from what we've seen with Black Panthers depicted in movies before. I think a lot of people, their exposure to the Black Panthers is, again, calling back to Forrest Gump. It's going to be in Forrest Gump where you have these very angry militant guys and Forrest's in the middle of this situation. Well, that movie's a comedy. You get away with doing that. But in this movie, you see a lot of the intelligence, not just angry protests and stuff like that. A lot of the media and the government at the time. Jesse Plemons' character, at one point when he's trying to turn the informant, the Lakeith Stanfield character, he even says, hey, the Black Panthers have done some things which are clearly breaking the law, clearly inciting violence or whatever else, and uh, maybe some mob-type antics uh, that arguably probably was true. Uh, but he says, are they really any different from the KKK? And there's sort of that philosophy that you know, the Black Panthers, that's kind of scary. But what Daniel Kaluuya brings and what this Fred Hampton character, what's so interesting about him is that you see a lot of the intelligence. He starts in this movie 
by being basically in a classroom setting and writing on a board and you see just the intellect and how he's able to communicate things in a much more civilized way. Uh, aside from that, you also see how he's able to pull together a lot of these other factions. I mean, he's bringing in people from other race groups who are introduced kind of as being odds with the Black Panthers and how, how this guy was able to just kind of combine all these different philosophies from all these dif different ethnic groups and actually unite them. And that's something that I wouldn't have known before, and that's what I think is so great about this movie. Ultimately, though, I mean, a biopic is a biopic. That's not what's going to sell me on a movie. As a thriller, as just a, a crime story, this movie almost plays a little bit like a Godfather movie. Uh, it plays a little bit like The Departed. It's a, it's a lot of betrayal, a lot of politics, and the gang dynamics are all over this place in the movie. And I feel like we could have almost done without... Let's fictionalize that section that sort of took me out of it, that made me feel like I'm watching part of a miniseries, and this is a true story. It's not just one consistent linear story. Let's just fictionalize some of that stuff, maybe cut some of it out, and just make this a straight crime thriller. It would play well like that, and I think that's where the movie's strength is, is that it is almost like a Black Panther true story version of The Departed or The Godfather or something like that. I hate to keep going back to this, but again, some of that middle section where the Fred Hampton character is arrested and taken out of the movie for a long period of time they get into the ideas of things that I would have liked them to expand on a little bit about what's going to happen to this party without this guy is the glue that holds us together. Look at how he brought in people from the outside. What's going to happen? And one of the best scenes in the movie takes place during that time period where he's not involved in it, where there's a bit of a shootout and a raid at their headquarters. But then we also never really get into, okay, well, how do they hold together and what things change while he's away? It just sort of glosses over that. And maybe this movie could have been an extra half hour. Maybe that would have solved the problem. Uh, I would I would have been okay with a two and a half hour long, you know, movie of Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, maybe there's a direct release, the uh, Shaka King cut or something like that. Uh, and we can get the massive version of this. Or maybe there is a great mini series to be told about some of the side characters. I think... That's one thing I really wanted to focus on is that this story almost feels like it's too big to be told in two hours and five minutes. And that doesn't take anything away from this movie. This movie's powerful. This movie is great to watch. It's easy to watch in one sitting if you can do that, which obviously I can't, uh, as discussed earlier. But if you can watch this in one sitting, it is an easy movie to watch. This is something I'll definitely go back to probably every couple of years, you know, just get the urge. I want to watch Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, but... I almost do want more because it feels like they're cramming so much into a small movie here. One thing that kind of takes me a little bit out of the movie is Martin Sheen as J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, I'm not going to fault producers for hiring a big name so they could try to sell a movie. I mean, obviously, Daniel Kaluuya, he's been in Black Panther in a supporting role. He was in Get Out. He's recognized at this point, although his name is not going to sell a movie. Like Keith Stanfield's name's not going to sell a movie. Jesse Plemons is not going to sell a movie. Uh, another minor character in Ashton Sanders, who uh, played one of the I'm not gonna say one of the three characters in Moonlight the character in Moonlight in one of the three stages of that movie you know he's incredible in a small role in here but none of these people are gonna sell a movie so fine let's get Martin Sheen in the movie I don't know if you needed a J Edgar Hoover character in this movie that that again took me a little bit out of this it feels a little Hollywood let's throw J Edgar Hoover in there and what are we gonna do let's get Martin Sheen in a bunch of makeup so people look at it and say oh Martin Sheen he, he he doesn't even look like Martin Sheen but I know it's Martin Sheen and he's playing J Edgar Hoover that's that's a big deal felt a little bit cheesy to me uh and obviously his presence in the movie is meant to be almost the ultimate villain which again i don't know enough about jared Hoover to say whether that's the case or not i think one of the things that it sets up really well is jesse plemons character the fbi agent because 
you don't really view him as either a bad guy or a good guy. And it's interesting in this movie that when he's interacting with his informant, when he's interacting with Lucky Stanfield, you almost feel like, yeah, this guy's shady, you know? He, he's he's twisting things around. He's trying to sell this guy. He's maybe a little bit manipulative. And then you see other scenes where he's just interacting with other characters that, that he's not the FBI agent in charge of an informant, the handler of an informant of, where you're like, I think he might be one of the good guys, even though he is on the FBI side, who in in the case of this story uh, are, are definitely pulling some shady tactics or whatever, You know, wh- whether through misunderstanding of what the Black Panthers represent, what threat the Black Panthers represented, or because there were other chapters of the Black Panthers that were more extreme and they just wanted to treat them all as a whole instead of as individuals. Uh, but there are a lot of scenes where you feel like he's actually one of the good guys. And it works in this movie that Jesse Plemons is playing both bad guy and good guy. And you kind of feel like, well, he probably is a good guy, but for work, he has to be a bad guy. And I love that about his character too. I said, I'm going to put this kind of in the middle. We'll do the rankings in a second. But I mean, this is another buy. This is one of the movies that I feel like you could substitute this into any of the year, 2017, 2018, 2019. And it still would be worthy of Best Picture nomination. And if it wins Best Picture, this is a worthy winner, even though I don't think it really has a chance at winning. Uh, I think that this would be a great winner. So wrapping everything up here, I'm going to kind of go through a ranking of the eight Best Picture nominated movies. Um, I'm going to assume Noah's ranking is Minari number one, Nomadland number two. Uh, it's safe to assume Jamie's rankings is Sound of Metal number one and Promising Young Woman number two, just based on uh, their reviews. When I started this, just before I even got in my rankings, looking at this, how many of these movies was I dying to see? I actually was dying to see Mank. Uh, and I was dying to see Trial of Chicago 7, and those aren't going to be the highest ones on here. The Father, I was not looking forward to at all, and it's going to be one of the highest on here. Uh, just sort of starting it off, number eight, Mank. I mean, it's the only one I've been here. I said it may be one of the worst movies we've reviewed in any of these Oscar years. It's just an awful movie. And again, it bothers me. Not only this got fine, it gets a Best Picture nomination in a year where there are so few, like a fraction of the amount of movies released as we normally get, fine. It gets a Best Director nomination for Fincher. That bothers me. It gets a Best Actor nomination for Gary Oldman. As a huge Gary Oldman fan, it pains me to say that bothers me. Not a good movie. The one really bad movie in this year. Number seven, probably again, no surprise, just based on my reaction to it. I'm going to put Nomadland. And it's weird that this is the front runner for Best Picture. I can see the appeal of this is that it is something completely different. It's not a story anybody would have expected to tell. But just echoing what I said earlier, I want to see a documentary version of this. I don't necessarily think I'm ever going to revisit Nomadland. Maybe I'll check it out years from now just to see if my opinions change because sometimes they do. Uh, France McDormand was good. Maybe not necessarily as great as everybody's making her out to be. Uh, but I still rented the movie, so it's infinitely better than Mank. Number six, I'm going to put Trial of the Chicago 7. And again, when I first saw that movie, I'm like, this movie is so entertaining it's so interesting. I, I love this. I, I want to watch it again. And then I just kind of forgot about it. So just for the fact that it doesn't have that staying power where months later you're continuing to think about it and that it is more just run-of-the-mill movie. It, this is what you expect from Hollywood doing a true story courtroom procedural movie. That's my number six. Uh, getting to the ones that I actually really did love and would recommend, my number five, Promising Young Woman, I had problems with the very, very ending of this movie. Uh, but... This is a movie, I, I told this to Jamie sort of after we recorded our segment the other night, that I wouldn't have put this as high if it hadn't been the fact that we watched this two, three weeks ago. And two, three weeks later, I keep looking back on thinking, wow, you know, it was really different the way this movie presented itself. The weird humor with this, the fact that they 
introduce ideas and then don't show you what she's doing. Uh, the craziness of the good part of the ending. Uh, this movie, maybe even years from now, goes even higher on the list. I, I think that the director, Emerald Fennell, I'm really interested to see what she does next because she directs this movie in a different way. I, I made an argument uh, last year when they were talking about how there were no female directors that were nominated for Best Director. And I was saying, I don't see any, and I'll stand by this, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't have a Best Male Director and Best Female Director. Is it any different than having a Best Male Actor and Best Female Actor? Uh, because this is a perfect evidence, the same as what Patty Jenkins did with Wonder Woman, that you're appealing not only to a different audience, but you're presenting a movie from a different point of view. But even though I'm not going to put Promising Young Woman as like the highest movie on this list, I think that what she does as a director is completely different than what not only what a man could have done, uh, because it's a different point of view, but it's just different than what I've seen any director done. Similar to the, the praise I gave for uh, The Father, I feel like that movie was just filmed in a way that I'd never seen a story like this presented before, and I think that's the biggest strength of Promising Young Woman. So maybe two, three years from now, I look back and Promising Young Woman's in my top three. Right now, I'm going to put it number five, though, just because the very, very ending did bother me, and it, it took me out of the movie a lot. Uh, number four, I'm going to put Judas and the Black Messiah. Again, loved everything about this movie. Uh, it felt like a traditional crime thriller. Uh, maybe a little bit too much for a two-hour movie. Felt rushed at times, but small knock against it. Uh, otherwise, for a great movie. My top three are really the three that I think should win. I don't think that any of these are going to win, because I, I actually we will we'll get to in a second what odds I think all the Best Picture nominees have. But I'm pretty sure No Man Lad's going to win, which I'm not going to be completely bothered by. But Minari, my number three, is probably the only one that really has a shot at winning this. And it is, it's such a great movie. It's such a personal story, as Noah and I mentioned. This is like a traditional American movie. It's just in a foreign language. And it's great to be able to see a movie about immigrants where you're seeing it in their original language. And there's so many little things about their culture, as Noah sort of touched on. This is something that is very familiar if you know Korean people. And that, again, gives you just a different point of view than what you would have gotten in your traditional immigrant story or your traditional pioneering story, even those take place in the 80s. My top two, which are the only two left, I would flip-flop over this. Last year, I think I had Parasite and 1917 as my top two, and I said, I honestly can't call uh, my favorite out of this. It's very similar this year. And maybe because uh, one of these movies I watched much more recently... Um, when I say much more, I'm talking about three or four days more recently, I would give it the edge. But uh, I'm going to put Sound of Metal number two. And again, you come back to me a week from now, I may say Sound of Metal is number one. I think last year I, I ended our episode by saying, I think I'm going to put 1917 number one and Parasite number two. Six months later, I would have said Parasite number one and 1917 number two. Uh, I just rewatched 1917. I might flip it again. But right now I'm going to put Sound of Metal number two. Um, no fault with this movie at all. This movie is incredible. It's totally not what I expected. It blew me away. It is the smallest movie you've ever seen presented with such incredible production values on no budget. They managed to elevate this movie beyond what a low budget movie like this should be able to do. Uh, and it's also very similar to my number one, which is The Father, the only movie I was not excited about seeing, which easily ends up as my number one. Not too easily because it's kind of very close to sound metal, but I didn't really struggle with this. Once I watched The Father, I'm like, oh, it's so close between Sound of Metal and The Father. But it took me about five minutes to think, like, I would give the slight edge to The Father because it is so different. The movie really has you questioning everything. I mean, it, 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 such a simple story, but just the fact that it finds a way through little tricks in uh, 
an actor appearing here and there, a scene being told out of sequence to just put you in the point of view of this guy and just Anthony Hopkins' performance, much like Riz Ahmed's, is just so good. Unlike what we're able to get with uh, Gary Oldman in Mank, where you have a good actor delivering an okay performance out of bad material, here you have a great, good actor delivering a great performance with great material. Uh, Riz Ahmed and Anthony Hopkins totally equal the material in the movie and they feel like the only actors could have pulled this off um so sound of metal will be my number two father will be number one now just quickly transitioning into i'm not gonna run through every single category here but just sort of the major ones and not even necessarily giving a prediction but just sort of going over the nominees and what i agree with and what i don't agree with it's hard to disagree with the best picture nominated movies here uh, i've already covered all of them but again i'm gonna say where is the five bloods this movie came out back in the summer, I think, so it could be it was just sort of forgotten. Uh, Spike Lee, you think a Spike Lee movie is going to get a lot of attention already? Is it the best movie Spike Lee ever made? No, I mean, Do the Right Thing and even Black Klansman are better movies than Defy Bloods. Uh, but Defy Bloods, again, is so different. You expect that it's going to be this movie about Vietnam vets reuniting, maybe having to mourn somebody they lost. I mean, Chadwick Boseman... I think that was the last movie he filmed, even though Ma's, um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, was the last one to come out. I think he filmed The Five Bloods last, or it could be the other way around. Um, he, he has a big presence in a small role, but like Delroy Lindo, this actor, we talked about in Get Shorty. He's been in Broken Arrow. He's been in so many things. One of those actors, if you Google him, you're like, I've seen him in so many things. They'll pop into your head. You would never think, oh, this guy will get nominated for an Academy Award. This should have been his year. And I'm almost outraged he didn't get nominated for Best Actor. Uh, and that this movie didn't get nominated for Best Picture. Because I feel like both would have blown everything away. And again, I loved The Father. I loved Sound of Metal. But if Defy Bloods was in here, it wouldn't even be close. I would easily pick Defy Bloods. Otherwise, it's hard to complain about the Best Picture movies nominated. Because again, there weren't as many movies nominated this year. And with the exception of Mank, I feel like they kind of nailed it. With representing a little bit of different types of genres, different types of stories. Best Director... The only one in here who doesn't have a Best Picture nomination as well is Another Round, uh, Thomas Vinterberg. Now, Another Round, I didn't get around to watching this. We're always under time constraints, trying to get all these movies watched in time. It sounded like a great movie. I'm sure it is. It's weird to see a Best Director nomination when you only have five, and yet the movie can't make the top eight. David Fincher getting nominated for Mank. Totally disagree with that one. Lee Isaac Chung from Minari. Love that movie. I think there's a real shot... It's unfortunate that the Academy often goes for, let's change things up. They never want to do back-to-back of the same thing, which is why often if somebody wins Best Actor and they give an equally good performance the next year, like Russell Crowe wins for Gladiator, which he probably shouldn't have, uh, and then he doesn't win for A Beautiful Mind, which is a better performance because they don't want to do the same thing two years in a row. The fact that Parasite won last year may actually be a problem for Minari being able to win either Best Picture or Best Director. Uh, just because the idea, well, we're going to have two Korean movies, even though these movies are completely different. It seems absurd, but I can see the uh, Academy voters going that way where they don't want to do the same thing over and over again. It would be my choice of the Best Director nominations here. Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Uh, I, I, I give her total credit for what she pulled off with this movie. I just don't think that this needs to be a fictionalized version of the story. And Emerald Fennel, I already talked a lot about for Promising a Woman. Totally agree with that nomination. Just looking at the best original screenplay nominations here, Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Promising a Woman, Sound of Metal, Trial of Chicago 7. Trial of Chicago 7 is the only movie that I don't feel like, you know, is necessarily up to the level of the others, but 
it's still a great movie. I mean, all these got Best Picture nominations, and all these movies, I feel like the screenplay really stands out. Sound of Metal, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the screenplay is going to be the star of this movie because a lot of it is just sort of what the actors do in a scene. A lot of probably not improvising in terms of what the actors did, but what the characters do is just sort of physically improvising in scenes and not necessarily what they're speaking. Uh, Promising a Woman, the screenplay, that probably be my favorite thing about the movie. The dialogue, which Jamie and I briefly talked about, particularly between uh, the two lead characters, just when they're sort of in a regular relationship outside of her nighttime activities, is just so great to watch that it could be its own movie. And I'd say the same for Minari. Uh, Minari, just the dialogue in that movie feels so real it feels so different it's funny um it's it conveys a lot with being subtle uh judas and the black messiah i mean the story is great i wouldn't necessarily say it's starring screenplay adaptive screenplay borat (laughs) gets a nomination here that's a very odd nomination first of all it's an improvised film uh so the fact that it has a screenplay nomination period i don't think it belongs here uh and then it's in the adapted category solely because it's a sequel to the original movie even though it's an original screenplay that makes no sense at all. At the same time, Trial of Chicago 7, it, it doesn't have one single source material that's based on, so it doesn't qualify for adapted screenplay, but it also shouldn't be an original. So maybe swap those two if you wanted to. Uh, other adapted screenplays, The Father, Nomadland, One Night Miami. Uh, one Night Miami is one of the few movies this year that I would actually say outside of Defy Bloods really deserved a little bit more love. Uh, and The White Tiger, which I haven't seen. Uh, out of all of these, Nomadland, again... Some good work with the screenplay, but there's a lot of this movie where there's not a lot going on. And it is just about the visual look of it. The Father, though, is so fast-paced. I mean, I would actually say that all movies here this year, The Father, the dialogue, and the screenplay is probably the best of any this year. So um, that would kind of be my choice out of that. Uh, Supporting nominations, Sasha Baron Cohen for Travel to Chicago 7 for uh, Supporting Actor, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, should have been a lead, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami playing Sam Cooke, amazing performance, Paul Ritchie in Sound of Metal as the the, the leader of the the Deaf Commune, amazing, and Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, I, I think that this will probably go to Daniel Kaluuya just because, again, it should have been a lead nomination, but I would love to see Paul Ritchie win for Sound of Metal. And really, either Daniel Kilo or Lakeith Stanfield, just because they were so incredible in that movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, but they both should have probably been in the lead category. Uh, supporting actress, Maria Bakalova for Borat. The one th- thing I will say about Borat, that even Ben and I said, we didn't like this movie. It-, it was just very average as a sequel, but the daughter stole the movie. I 100% agree with her getting a nomination. Uh, I just don't necessarily agree with any other nominations for the movie. Glenn Close and Hillbilly Elegy, this is one of the uh, controversial ones because that movie was so panned, and it really is not, I couldn't even get through it. It is not a good movie. Let's just give Glenn Close another nomination. Let's Meryl Streeper give her a nomination just because she's in a movie. Totally disagree with that. Olivia Coleman and The Father, uh, I already talked about how big of a fan I was of hers, and even though I wasn't a huge fan of The Favorite, she won. Uh, it would be great to see her win again. I also think that could have been a lead performance, but uh, whatever, it's in the supporting. Amanda Seyfried for Mank, no. <laughs> Nothing about Mank deserves a nomination, because again, giving a good performance with bad material does not equate to an acting nomination. And Yoon Yu Jun, I think I butchered that again, from Minari, who played the grandma, that's my vote to win, and that's who I think probably will win. I, I think it'd be great if Minari can get at least one win, and if it would be for the grandma, that would be the, my favorite thing about the Oscars this year. Uh, best actor and best actress, uh, Riz Ahmed, Sound of Metal, 
Uh, Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins, the father, Gary Oldman, Mankin, Steven Yeun for Minari. This is going to be Chadwick Boseman's to lose. The fact is, this isn't any knock against Chadwick Boseman. I mean, I love Chadwick Boseman. And even this performance, I would say he's second or third on my list for acting performances this year. He was great in that movie. He was incredible in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. He carries that movie. It is an average movie that his performance really carries. But would he win if he hadn't died this year? Probably not. And I've seen a lot of people supporting him who are still saying the same thing. You know what? He's he's going to win because he died. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate to Riz Ahmed because Riz Ahmed gave the performance of a lifetime in Sound of Metal and Anthony Hopkins gave the maybe the performance of his lifetime in The Father. And they're going to be pushed to second and third. I, I did read something interesting where somebody was saying that Chadwick Boseman gives an incredible performance, but nobody's necessarily going to be talking about that as a defining Chadwick Boseman performance 20 years from now. And that's kind of what I've been going through over and over again on here. Is 10, 20 years from now, I'm going to remember this? I still think people are struggling to remember Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's not a bad movie, but it is the opposite of what The Father is. The Father, let's take a stage play and let's really elevate it and make it cinematic and make it a movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, you watch a movie and you feel like, oh, I just watched a stage play with better sets. The performance from Chadwick Boseman is incredible in there. I agree with him getting nominated. Uh, I don't agree if he does win this just because I'm going to hate the fact that Anthony Hopkins and Riz Ahmed don't win. Uh, I couldn't choose between the two of those, Riz Ahmed or Anthony Hopkins. I could not decide who should win between those two. They're my two favorite performances of the year. And Best Actress, Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, Andra Day for the United States versus Bill at Holiday. I haven't seen Vanessa Kirby, who's in Mission Impossible, uh, the last Mission Impossible movie, and the next piece of woman. Didn't see it. France McDormand in Nomadland. Again, it's not her best performance. And Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. Uh, I would love to see Carrie Mulligan win this, and she might be my choice out of these nominations because she's so out there in Promising Young Woman. It is. It could not have been an easy role to play, and she's not the actress you would expect to pull off a movie like that. And she does it so well. And the movie itself is so out there and insane. And her character, you never know what she's going to do. You never understand what she's doing. Uh, but yet you sympathize with the character. And she's she's compelling to watch. Uh, I would love to see her win. And I don't think she's going to beat France McDormand. I think that there's something about Nomadland that a lot of people out there are getting that maybe I didn't get. And in all fairness, you know, I, I love certain things about Defy Bloves that obviously the Academy didn't. Uh, but it would be nice if Carrie Mulligan won, and she probably is the, the next best shot. If Viola Davis wins for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, again, I love Viola Davis. I think if she had uh, fences a couple years ago, that was the role of a lifetime for her. This, she's secondary to Chadwick Boseman in the movie. I feel like she goes a little bit too over the top. I get that she's playing a real character who was a very over-the-top personality, but to me, it was a little bit campy at times, even if it was intended to be, uh, and it's a decent performance. So that wraps it up. The most exhausting <laughs> two hours I've ever had talking to myself and a little bit from Noah and Jamie. As I said at the beginning, even if we didn't have time to record a whole series on this, I wanted to record this just because I've never not watched all the Best Picture-nominated movies. Uh, it's probably been 15 years since I missed even a single Best Picture nominee uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the Oscars tomorrow, not necessarily for the ceremony, because I don't know how it's going to play out, if it's going to even be interesting. It'll be nice that speeches will probably be cut short. It'll be easier to cut them short. Bad internet connections may automatically cut it short, so we won't have a six-hour-long show. But I'm excited to see if the movie that wins will be one of these ones that I believe 10 years from now will stand up and that this won't be looked back at as the year the pandemic killed movies. So thanks for joining us. 
We do have a few other things coming out. Um, we wrapped up our guest host month with uh, Billy Garcia, Martina Cio, and Matt Dyson, uh, which was an abbreviated month. We, we needed a week off in order to get everything going for our next month, which uh, we kind of teased was going to be good horror sequel month, just in the lead up to A Quiet Place 2, if it even comes out, who knows. Uh, but we have one more week to kill before then. And just sort of surprise, last minute thing, uh, we're going to be doing a review of the new Mortal Kombat movie which uh, didn't come out this weekend because the Oscar thing had to come out because that's tomorrow. We've only got 24 hours before that comes out and this episode will no longer be relevant. Uh, But uh, the Mortal Kombat movie review will be coming out next week. It's going to be a little bit of a longer review. Typically our reviews are about half an hour long. We're going to go a little bit more into in-depth with it. And Jamie's going to be on there because this is her choice. To get Jamie on an episode usually comes down to me saying, Jamie, please be on this episode or... Jamie, six months ago, you agreed to do this, and now you're saying you don't want to do it, because she's like, eh, I don't want to record, I don't want to record. She said to me, okay, we got to do an episode on Mortal Kombat, so we're going to be back for that next week, and then after that, we're going to be starting 24 month, beginning of May, we've been leading up with all these interviews, which you can go back and listen to, uh, interviewing cast members from multiple seasons to 24, that's all sort of a tease, as we're going to start covering 24 from the beginning, from the beginning of season one, starting in about another week or two, and that'll carry us through the next couple of years of content. Thank you for joining us. My name is Colin, and again, where is the Five Bloods? Thanks for downloading this episode from the Oz Network. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or by copying our RSS feed into your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please drop us a rating and leave us some feedback. You can also be sure to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and happenings from the show, as well as find out how you can get involved in upcoming episodes by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as getting everything you need under one roof at theoznetwork.net. Thanks once again for listening, and we'll speak to you next time.